Oh, good morning, Skyview. I uh, find myself these days uh, defining myself negatively. I am not Pastor Ryan. Uh, Pastor Ryan was supposed to preach this morning, but he has been ill, unfortunately, so we pray for him. I'm not Pastor Stu, who I wasn't the last time I was here. So uh, it seems every time I preach, I, I, I get to not be somebody. But I am Pastor Doug. I'm one of the retired ministers here at the church, and it's always a privilege when I get a chance to uh, share my passion and my privilege and my pleasure in bringing God's Word to you. So this morning, that is what I am privileged to do. I want to welcome each of you who are here live and in person. Uh, to those of you who are uh, joining us online, maybe with your satellite dish at your trailer down at the lake, or at home where the air conditioning is a little cooler, maybe though it's very cool here, uh, you are most welcome. You're part of the family. And so we're glad that you're here, and I am very glad to be here. I'm going to take a little point of, of privilege and pleasure this morning and uh, welcome my big sister who's joining us from Sherwood Park. And I think she's online. She said she would be to check up on her little brother. And uh, so, uh, Marion, uh, I'll do my best. And uh, there we go. Well, let's pray together. There's a, sh a prayer on the screen before I bring you the scriptures, and then we will uh, spend some time uh, examining them. So would you join me in uh, praying? Living God, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the new light of this day. Open our lips to tell the empty tomb. Open our hearts to believe the good news through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Words from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Very short passage, but a potent passage. This is the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me up to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together for a moment. You pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and we'll all pray to God. How's that? Lord God, thank you today. Thank you for your written word, for the living word revealed in the written word of the scriptures. Thank you for each person who's here each family unit represented, each home represented. All are your children, and together we are your family, and we are so grateful this morning. Lord God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. 
And I pray that we might leave this place just a bit more like Jesus than when we came in this morning. Be with those, Father, and our family who have special needs today. Some gather here who perhaps have family in crisis, family who are ill, and perhaps not feeling well themselves. Some who are grieving, who in the last week or weeks have lost loved ones. I pray for your peace and your comfort. Some, Father, who are struggling with this hot weather, and I pray that you will keep them cool. We pray for our pastoral team, as already has been done by Helen, but I do pray for Ryan and Michaela. I ask that you will touch them physically, that you will lift them up and restore them to health. So, Lord God, I pray now that you would bless your word. Grant me a voice to speak your truth. Grant to those who are listening ears to hear your truth. And we'll be careful to give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this sermon this morning um, is a bit of a challenge, and I've really been praying that this will not be a negative experience. This passage lends itself too readily to heaping guilt on people, especially those of us who live in the West and are blessed with material possessions. But that's not the point. That's not what I want to do this morning. Saw a bumper sticker, though, on Deerfoot recently as I was driving. I was both hands on the wheel, but I was looking around. The bumper sticker was on the back of a, a very nice car. And it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. Hmm. Interesting idea. But then I thought to myself, can you really believe bumper stickers? I mean, really. I, I, I'm a student of bumper stickers. Can you really believe them? I mean, is there really a baby on board on every car that has something on the window saying there's a baby on board? Sometimes those babies look an awful lot like Yorkshire Terriers. I mean, just saying. Does anyone actually check the messages on that phone number on the back of the delivery truck that you're to call because the driver's driving poorly? Don't know. Does the person who cut you off on Blackfoot Trail last Thursday really stop for unicorns? Hmm. And will that young man driving the brand new 4x4 really listen to the sticker on his bumper that said, God, if you'll give Alberta another oil boom, I won't waste it all this time? It appears, though, to me, that many people do believe the first bumper sticker that I mentioned to you. And this is why I want to be careful this morning that this doesn't cross, come across to you as being negative or condemnatory or, or anything like that. That's not what it's about. He who dies with the most toys, she who dies with the most toys, wins. We all know people, maybe we are one of them, who are spending a lot of money that they really don't have, collecting a lot of things that they don't really need, trying to prove their value and position to a lot of people who they don't really care about. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with wanting and having nice things. And that's, what, that's the positive side. Please don't leave this message thinking that I'm somehow saying to you, oh, we shouldn't have nice things. You shouldn't live in a nice house or drive a nice car or have possessions. Mm, not true. 
There's nothing wrong in and of themselves with having nice things. I like nice things. I, I'm privileged to drive a nice car. I have a nice family. I live in a nice condo. I, I'm, I'm very happy. I attend a nice church in a lovely building. So the point of what Jesus is saying here is not somehow that you are extra spiritual and extra holy if you don't have much. That's not true. There's nothing wrong with wanting and having nice things. But what Jesus, I think, is saying to us here is that we must not be possessed by what we possess. We must not be possessed by what we possess. Jesus gives us a warning. And he says in another place in the Gospels how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Not because they're rich, but because it's so easy to become dependent and to worship that which we have. It's a human temptation. The kingdom of God, though, has a different measurement of success and security, a different set of priorities by which we're called to live. That's what Jesus is talking about, I believe, here. The passage from Luke contains a warning about buying into a definition of success that was reflected on my bumper sticker that I read and is reflected by much of what we hear on television and read in media and on social media, that somehow, that somehow, our worth is defined by what we have. Or our worth is defined by how we look or how we dress. By what we own or do not own. But you are worth much more than that. You are a child of God, created in the spiritual image of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, excuse the grammar, God don't make junk. So if you have bought into the world's understanding and you have been told by someone, maybe even someone close to you, that you are junk, it's a lie. So the call of Jesus here, I believe, is that we must not allow ourselves to be defined by what we have or do not have, by how we look or do not look, where we live or where we do not live. You get my drift. Three principles. I went to seminary at a time when a good sermon had to have three points. If it was going to be a really good sermon, the points alliterated. <laughs> These do. <laughs> You'll have to decide whether it's a good sermon or not after I'm done. I'm doing my best. <laughs> Luke 12, 13 through 15. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus spoke a great deal about priorities, about what you can ultimately, what can ultimately save and satisfy. 
And again, I'm not saying, Jesus wasn't saying that we should never be anxious or never worry about things in the world, about having enough. That we should somehow feel guilty because we have enough or angry because we do not have enough. It's okay to be concerned. We're human beings. We're wired sometimes to be concerned. Sometimes we need to be concerned. Even anxious. But we need to ask ourselves when we're concerned, who or what are we placing our hopes and our trust in? Now, I need to tell you that I come from a long line of worriers. Uh My mother, though she never went to university, had a master's degree in worry, maybe even a doctorate. And I often used to tease my late mother that if there was nothing real to worry about, Anna, I would say, you'll make something up to worry about. So trust me, the apple didn't fall that far from the tree, and I'm prone sometimes to worry and fret, get concerned. And I don't know whether there's a connection, but I do find the older I get, the easier it is for me to worry and fret and be concerned. So some of you young people, you have that to look forward to, but then again, maybe you don't. Worry is a lot like a rocking chair. You invest a whole bunch of energy, but you don't get anywhere. And I know that here, but sometimes I don't know that here. I know in my heart that God is more powerful than my problems, more able than my anxiety, more wonderful than my worries, but sometimes my head doesn't get it. The Bible teaches us that placing God first will help us to place our worldly cares and concerns in their proper place. So Jesus here tells a story to this young man who it appears is in the middle of a family feud about the division of the family possessions and the settling of his father's estate. In Jewish uh, life at this time that Jesus was speaking, uh, it was a very paternalistic society. So ladies, I'm sorry, girls, I'm sorry, but at that, that culture it was. And the oldest son got twice what the next son got, and that son got more than the next one. And if you were number six or seven son in the row, you were really out of luck. And if you were not a male, then your hope was to marry somebody who was the first son and you got lots of stuff, so there you go. I'm glad society has changed. Jesus refuses to become embroiled in this first century game of family feud, which I think is interesting. He says, who am I to arbitrate between you? Do I look like a lawyer? No, he didn't say that, but that's a, that's a paraphrase. That's between the lines. And you know that preachers live a lot between the lines in the scriptures. That's where we like to dwell. Jesus refuses to play this game and instead says, and I quote, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Sounds like a pretty serious warning. Take care, be on your guard. If Jesus says, take care and be on your guard, I think we should probably listen to what he's saying. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, says, notice that and be on guard. The King James Version, take heed and beware. 
And the message, take care, protect yourself. Now, the Doug Cooney version of the scripture, which doesn't really exist, but anyways, says, if you will, listen up, look around, it's dangerous out there. Be careful. The important truth Jesus speaks is this. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You are more than what you own or what you have. So if you have a lot, you've been blessed by God. If you have little, that's okay. But your worth and your value to God and to others and to this world in which we live is not defined by what you do or do not have. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy into it, as my sermon title says. The bumper sticker's a lie. You do not win in the end because you have the most toys. If that was the case, I would have saved my collection of matchbox cars, and I would have kept a lot of other things that I had when I was a little boy. My Tonka toys were to die for, fellas. If you don't know what a Tonka toy is, then you're in a different generation. But anyways... The principle of possessions, you are not owned by what you possess. You are not defined by what you possess. Your value does not lie in what you possess, but what you possess, enjoy, because it's a gift from God. Amen. Secondly, Luke 12, 16 to 19, the principle of possessions, get the alliteration, the temptation of the temporal. Get it again? Luke 12, verse 16. Then he told them a parable. Jesus was always telling stories. He was a great storyteller. He told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So following the warning and the wisdom to this young man, Jesus, as he often did, turns to the crowd and tells this story. A farm story to an agrarian society. Israel was filled with farmers and shepherds and sheep and all kinds of wonderful farmy things. Sort of like Saskatchewan, where I'm from. The story is simple and its truth is powerful if the crowd and we have ears to hear. It's been a good year. And the farmer today would be talking, if he was in our age, about a bumper crop. The trucks could barely keep the grain away from the combines. I grew up on a farm and I've been there when we one autumn had to buy another truck because there was so much grain we couldn't keep it away from the combines in time. The weather had been perfect, the grasshoppers had lost their appetite, and the harvest was pouring in. But the farmer had a conundrum. What do I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns because they're too small, and there I will build new ones, and I will store all my grain and all my goods. Nothing wrong with building more storage. That keeps people who supply grain bins in business. Builders who build barns, busy. 
Nothing wrong with building more storage. But Jesus seems to tell the story to point out a wrong, even a foolish attitude that this wealthy, successful farmer had. A faulty approach to things. A little bit of, if I get the most toys on the biggest barns, then I'm obviously a winner. And I'll be fine. And I'll be good. And the man's eyes seem to have turned from God's provision to prideful arrogance. Being a bit harsh on the fellow, I'm sure, but still. And to dangerous delusion and misplaced priorities. And our walk with God is dependent upon maintaining an attitude of humility. And reliance upon and trust in God when times are bad and when times are good. Therein lies the temptation and the danger and the lie. It's the temptation to rely upon the temporal and the worldly. To rely on ourselves and our efforts alone and not upon the grace and the love of God. As Teresa of Avila said many centuries ago, all things pass. Bumper crops are followed by crop failures. Successful and abundant rain is followed by hailstorms sometimes. And so we must be careful lest we be like this farmer and say to my soul, soul? Man, I'm hot. I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to build bigger barns. There's nothing wrong with relaxing. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking in moderation. And there's nothing wrong with being merry. Would that we were all merry, though that's a bit of a dated word now. We were all happy. A warning that is similar to that given by Jesus about building your house upon a rock as opposed to building upon the sand seems germane. There's nothing as certain as change. Everyone who knows that life can change in a moment or a heartbeat in the wink of an eye in the change of a lane in the attack of a germ or a virus. I think as I get older how many times my heart has beat during the past 70, almost three years. And I just assume it's going to keep on doing it. Thank God that it does. 60, 70, sometimes 80 beats a minute. But it does it. What a miracle. But it's not guaranteed. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to this farmer a little bit later. God doesn't want us to live in anxiety and worry and fret about today or tomorrow. But he wants us to be aware that what we have is a gift and a trust. Whom do you trust this morning? Whom can you ultimately depend upon? I think it's God. I know it's God. I know it can only be God. For God never changes. God never leaves us. Never deserts us. So we've got the temptation of the temporal, to think in the now, to believe that this is going to last forever, that everything is, is wonderful, to say to ourselves, self, man, I'm good. Finally, the fallacy of the fool. Help with that. Another alliteration. The fallacy of the fool, 20 and 21. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Need to take that 21st verse as an entirety. It's not saying close out your savings account and spend everything you've got. It's not what it's saying. It says, let me run it by you again. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. It's a both and. Now, if my research is accurate, I believe that this is the only place in Scripture that God specifically calls an individual a fool. I think that's true. The Concise English Dictionary, I used to teach English in another life when I was a school teacher, and I love dictionaries. But the Concise English Dictionary defines fool in this way. A fool is a person without common sense or judgment. A silly person. A jester. A buffoon. I like that. Buffoon. It's even nice to say if you say a buffoon. A buffoon. An idiot. A wicked person. That's interesting. Now, Rosage the Thoris, with all its list of synonyms, and I like these too, says that synonyms for the word fool include a clown, a nitwit. Good, I like that. A ninny. That's a good one. A nincompoop. That's a really good one. I like that one. A meathead. A knucklehead. Or a blockhead with O's to Charlie Brown. And if you get that, then you're my age and maybe not too much younger. I do not know what these words were in Aramaic, or meant in Aramaic, Jesus' language, or in Koinonia Greek, the original language of the New Testament, but I know what they mean to us today. It's no small thing that Jesus here refers to this person as a fool. Why was the farmer a fool? Because he had a good harvest? No. Thanks be to God. Because he built a bigger barn? No. That makes sense. Why was he a fool? It seems clear that the foolishness of the man lay in where he placed his trust, his confidence, and in the perceived arrogance of placing his trust in possessions and produce instead of in God. He was a fool because he bought the lie. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. Again, let me stress, there's nothing intrinsically sinful or ungodly about things. God made things. Somehow, and I think I know historically why, Christians got the idea that material things are wrong or evil. Everything from big houses to sexuality, to you know, that anything material, the body, is somehow evil or sinful. It's not true. God creates stuff. God created you. God created things. God deals in the material. God is spiritual. And the material is not the end-all and be-all. God placed in the seed the power to grow, in the sun the power to shine, in the clouds the power to rain. God produces not only the seed but also the harvest. And sometimes it's abundant and sometimes it's not. It all comes from God. 
A good harvest is a gift from God. The good things that you have in your life, your health, your strength, your home, your car, whatever it might be, need to be acknowledged as a trust and a gift from God. It says in the letter of James, every generous act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow or change. What the man in the parable forgot, and what we too often forget to our own peril, is that our breath itself, as I alluded to earlier, every heartbeat, all that we think and earn and possess and think we own, is actually a trust from God. It's a gift from God. And to God, we need to give thanks. All thanks, glory, honor are due and owed to and deserved by God alone who created us and loves us and loved us before we even existed and will love us long after we cease to exist in this earthly form. Every good and perfect gift is God's to give and ours to receive with grateful hearts and to hold loosely for the God who gives is also the God who sometimes takes away. Appreciate, enjoy, and use the things that God has given to you. But place your trust in God, not in those things. Worship the Creator, not the creation. God is in creation, but creation is not God. You may need to think about that a little bit, but let me run it by you again. Worship the Creator, not the created not the creation. God is in creation, but creation is not God. You want to reflect or meditate a bit upon that. The passage has many layers and meanings and application. And as I said when I started, I prayed and hoped, and I still pray and hope that this will not be perceived as a negative message to you about what you have or do not have. That's not the point. That's not what God is saying through the scriptures. Rejoice and be glad for what God has given you. Seek that. This story is often preached in that way as a condemnation of the material, but that's not what the story says, at least to me. It's an oversimplification and to distort what Jesus was saying to the young man and to the crowd who gathered around him that day. The passage and many others in both Old and New Testament is not about possessions as much as about priorities. That's what I think the story is about. It's not about possessions, but it's about priorities. What has number one place in our life? What is primary? What is our focus? What do we trust? Who do we trust? The picture offered in the imagery of Genesis is a world that has been distorted and disfigured by selfishness and rebellion against the Creator. A world that in the beginning was beautiful and good and one day will be beautiful and good again when Jesus comes. A world that will be healthy and whole in which in the book of Revelation it says there will be no more crying and no more tears and no more sorrow and no more sickness. And we will see God as he is. A world that will be healthy and whole and filled with the glory of God. I believe that what Jesus was and is saying in the scripture this morning 
is about placing God first in creation and in our lives. I believe that what Jesus is saying to the young man and what the story of the man with the abundant harvest is illustrating is much more about priorities than possessions. Not a condemnation of possessions, but a promotion of proper priorities. What Jesus is asking me and you this morning is this. What is the most important thing in my life? What do I depend upon? What is most important to me? What holds the number one position in my list of priorities? What do we truly worship? What do we truly trust? Not to the exclusion of other things, necessarily. But what do I ultimately, who do I ultimately depend upon and trust? That's the question. What we have, be it little or much, is a gift from God. And we need to care for it, to share it. We need to love. We need to live as people of compassion and grace and generosity, stewards of the good things that God entrusts to our care. Enjoy them. Have fun with them. Take pleasure in the things that God has given to you. But don't worship them. Worship only God. To learn to give graciously and humbly and freely to those who don't have as much. To learn to receive with thankfulness and grace from those who give. To work with love to bring God's kingdom to fruition in this world in which we live. To bring freedom from hunger, want from poverty, freedom from slavery, of human trafficking and other ways where people are mere possessions to be owned and sold and used. That's the sin. We were not created to be used we were created to be worshipers of God. This is God's world. You, we, even me, we're God's people. What we think we own is really a gift from God to be enjoyed, to be used, to share God's love and peace with others. We're stewards, old, old word, but stewards of what we have, not owners. So enjoy what you've been given. Hold on to it with a loose grip. Give with an open hand. And give the glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this brief passage of Scripture. Thank you for the lessons that we learn here about what it means to love and to serve God. Thank you for what you have given to us to each of my brothers and sisters. And we pray for those who, it would appear, at least in our Western eyes, are less fortunate than we. And there are hungry and thirsty and enslaved and suffering people in the world. Help us to do what we are able to do and help your church to do what it is able to do to bring freedom, to bring comfort, to bring strength, to end hunger to end slavery, to work to bring the kingdom of God, that your will on earth might be done as it is in heaven. So bless my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the privilege of sharing these words. And may we leave here with food to think about as we go home or out to feast upon food that you provide for us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.